Welcome to Anecdotal Notes. I'm one co-host, Pat Aiken, and I'm joined, rejoined today Yay. by Steve Hyde, our other co-host. Hello, Interwebs. I'm back. I appreciate all the good thoughts and prayers and and uh, everything that people sent my way because I've been absent in the last two or three episodes, but I'm feeling a lot better. Uh, I'm not quite as overworked at the moment as I was the last couple of weeks, so we are hopefully we're getting things back in gear. Yep, and uh, whatever you had the, during the last two weeks, I caught it. <laughs> Fever, chills, all of that sort of thing. Yeah. And the creeping crows. Whatever, yes, whatever. First, <laughs> you know what? First time in many years mm-hmm. that I've suffered anything like that, mm-hmm. and it was not nice. Mm-hmm. It was bad, you know. know. But I think you and I both have, have had a history of typically not being all that bothered by pollen and things like right. that. Right. This this particular year and the last couple of years has been kind of ramping up, and I don't know if it's maybe as we age and ripen that our resistance to it falls Could or be. what's been going on. But this year has been particularly brutal. I remember seriously back in you know my teens and twenties, mm-hmm. you know you could you could shook a pine tree of pollen on me. Mm-hmm. I just shook it off like a dog and went wouldn't have, yeah. wouldn't have affected me. My you know my wife is completely opposite. We pretty much have to probably ambulance her somewhere if you did that she'd you'd start shooting her Zyrtec but I don't know you know we bemoan the fact when we get old that uh, we're being you know we, we lose some of the, the vigor and resilience and resilience <laughs> in your constitution you know I, I, I once I remember you know I could work for 36 hours straight Mm-hmm. In my youth, you know, yeah. I'd be I up. Too. I could do it. Mm-hmm. I'd be there. Now I might sleep 24 hours at the end of the yeah. the thing, but but I could make my way through. You know what? These days, yeah. I'm pretty good. Uh, I'm pushing the envelope at seven. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much me. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty much the same way. <laughs> I want to go home. I want to, you know, go to bed. Yeah. Put my drink a uh, caffeine free now that I can't have caffeine. Yeah. Yes, that's that's a gl- <laughs> that's glorious. I'll tell you the truth. If you know, if you're a person like me who I really relied on those um, power shot things, mm-hmm. Red Bull. Yeah. You know, oh, I say, right. oh well, I feel awful. I'll drink a Red Bull. Yeah. And, and you know, endocrinologist says, oh, you know, you're really messing yourself up. So yeah. there you go. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you and I talked about this. Uh, pre-show sort of shot text back and forth and uh, <clears throat> I think today you know the topic is going to be holy places and it's going to be I feel like the listeners is now we're going to just talk it's going to be a, a more general sort of conversation and we're going to talk about observations you know from our own personal lives I mean, I've got a couple of things I'm going to lead with um that that one was in the United States, one was in Japan, and you know and we're just going to allow this thing to organically develop because that's what this show is about. If you're just tuning in, understand that you know while there are many admirable podcasts that deal with the paranormal, they're very slick, they're very professional. Okay. You need to teach our show more like two academics 
discussing a subject for a classroom or to be taught because that's our avenue. We're here. We're going to look at things. It's sometimes in minutia. Mostly we're going to have a macro survey of the of the subject matter. But, you know, think of this as sort of like you're kind of taking a course, okay? I hope you're entertained, okay? that's I want you to be entertained. Maybe as the show expands, we'll have guests. And, you know, uh, if I'm working on my doctorate right now, so I'll just be honest with you. In the real world, there are such things as priorities. I'm not a millennial. <laughs> okay, I'm not putting neither di- am I. Not dissing millennials, but I have priorities and you know, I was taught by World War Two era parents that you put things that are important first and then then down the ladder uh, of importance is how you line your life up. So guys, I mean <clears throat> I don't mean to neglect the website, I don't mean mm-hmm. you know, if you correspond to me, I take the time to immediately correspond back with you if if you write steve he he will get it immediately mm-hmm. okay understand that but you know i really i don't have lots of hours in the day i'm doing lots of research and steve is undertaking you know his vocation steve is committed in you know having rebuilt some little engines now i've never mm-hmm. done anything like steve's done but i promise you the level of concentration necessary. When when you finish rebuilding an engine, you really want to eat some potatoes and go to sleep. I mean, <laughs> pretty just much. just pretty much. Also, there is a little bit more involved in that. I mean, as I, I function as as a race car mechanic and builder during the day, but also I'm I'm functioning as a partner in the business that's undergoing changes. We're trying to expand. We're trying to gain uh, financial partners to grow the business. Uh, we have some other outside opportunities coming in that we'll be working on that I can't say very much but may or may not have to do with race cars at all that sprung from my partner uh, up there's previous employment so um, between all of that and trying to put on my businessman entrepreneurs hat and at the same time working on the customer cars you know, and everything else that goes on in life with taking care of an elderly parent and everything else. I mean, the hours of the day fill up very quickly. So yes. as as Pat was conveying, uh, we do take the show seriously and we devote the amount of time that we are able to to it. Mm-hmm. So, but if you contact us and want to communicate with us or just hear from us or on a particular subject or story that you have, I mean, if we don't respond back to you, uh, immediately or in the next day or two. Don't be offended by it. I mean, we do see messages. It's just that we act when we're able to. That's right. I mean, you know, like you said, and I'm not going to belabor the point that with the stuff you're doing in, you know, sometimes unless you've ever undertaken a doctorate, this is the Mm -hmm. epitome. This is the top end. This, Mm -hmm. This translates a person from being a student into a scholar. Mm-hmm. And they are going they demand so much research, okay? So just bear with us, be patient with us, and we'll communicate with you. And also, like I said, you know, maybe at some point uh, I get a break and I and you know, we can slick the show up some. I'm working on it. I've got some tools mm-hmm. and stuff, but 
priorities. Yeah. Got to take care of that first. Well, anyway, okay, thank you for that. You know, what do we call that? A diatribe? I don't know, but yeah. but but it's a PSA. It's more or less just a public service message to our dedicated listeners because we really value you. Unlike a lot of places, you're not just a number to us. I look at this as a global classroom, mm-hmm. and we're examining these things, and we're learning together. And in our classroom, your opinion counts. You don't have to agree with us. Mm-hmm. You can listen to us. You can completely disagree with us. Mm-hmm. All I want as a co-host, and I'm sure Steve would agree with this, is that you just think. Mm-hmm. Think for yourself. Think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Research for yourself. Arrive at your own conclusions mm-hmm. because that's what science is. Yes. And above all, have fun. Yeah. Have None of this fun. is worth doing if you don't have fun. That's right. You're auditing the course anyway. So, you know, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to give you an A. So, anyway, okay, we'll move along. Uh, if, you know, the whole notion of a holy place. A spiritually charged piece of land, a building, or some place. I'm going to give you two examples from my own life. These are the two most notable examples that I could think of. And uh, one, well, they both are spooky, uh, but not to the degree that uh, it's going to keep you up at night, I don't think. Uh, I'll start with the Japanese one first. And, I, and like I said, you know, I'm coming to you today with incomplete information because I had uh, researched, I used Google Earth, I did all of these things in an attempt to find the name of this particular shrine in Japan. Understand in Japan, they have temples which are Buddhist, and then they have shrines which are Shinto. And the Shinto uh, shrines generally worship the the Japanese gods. and, and I don't know if you would necessarily uh, categorize it as animist, but their spirits, the Japanese in the Shinto tradition believe that a myriad number of spirits exist, and it's very ancient. You know, we're going back a couple of thousand years. Yeah, from what I understand, there's there's a lot of ancestor worship involved too in Shinto. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, They remember their ancestors. at the Obun Festival, which I, I attended during my stay there, um, we went out with the family. Of course, I didn't have any ancestors, you know, so I was just a I was a yeah. bystander. Yeah. But you know, went out. They made uh, a food offering out of these delicious little moon cakes, which is a bean curd sort of cake, and mm-hmm. lit uh, what like, uh, incense, but it's a special kind of incense. It's a mm-hmm. temple incense. And actually, you know, they they put a shrine, a little at the Tokonoma, in the center of their home. Mm -hmm. And uh, at some point, uh, in one family I lived with, they were Buddhist, and they would awaken you chanting at 4 Mm a.m., which, you know, is startling to a Westerner, Mm -hmm. an Occidental person. Uh, And the other family was more Shinto, so they didn't do the Buddhist chanting, but they still had the shrine. And during the Obon Festival, we went out to uh, a graveyard, and uh, they visited the graves of all the departed ancestors, lit the incense, said prayers. And, and to be honest with you, um, <clears throat> I was a student. I had received a scholarship 
from at that point it was the Asian Studies Consortium of Georgia. Okay, and I was a cultural anthropology student and received a, a scholarship to attend an immersion program in Japan. And an immersion program is I had some little bit of knowledge of Japanese, but essentially what they do is you're going to classes, in, and I attended Hakodate University, and you live with a family, and they to some degree don't speak English, and you to some degree don't speak Japanese, and you hopefully work things out mm-hmm. in the middle. <laughs> uh, lots of great stories about me trying to, to cope with never being able to really speak a, a you know a yeah. sentence in English. Yeah. Tough stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I wish I could. T- I might. You know what I'm gonna tell on the side. I got desperate at some about six eight weeks in. Uh-huh. I was by myself and I was just exploring the town mm-hmm. and hadn't seen an American of any color or description for weeks now. <laughs> and of course, you have to understand that in this town, even though it really by our standards is not a small rural town, mm-hmm. by Japanese standards, you're in the sticks, pal. Yeah. You're in the boondocks out mm-hmm. of here. So they really don't, you know, gaijin, mm-hmm. foreigner. That is not used to seeing it. So everywhere you go to, you feel, I know exactly what like Elton John feels like. Mm-hmm. Because everywhere you go, people stop and literally stop in their tracks and stare at you mm-hmm. because you are an oddity. Mm-hmm. Okay? I'm walking down the street and I'm down in the old section of uh, Hakodate. And I saw, he probably maybe a quarter of a mile away white guy standing there and he was wearing a white suit and it startled me and I said oh wow you know maybe you know he didn't seem to be moving so I kept walking towards him and the closer I got I saw you know it's like yeah he's obviously Caucasian you know he's a white guy I'm going to go talk to him you know maybe he's English if if he's not American maybe he's uh, an Aussie or a Brit you know somebody that can speak English because I need to speak it. So, so I'm approaching him. I get up close. I get probably 20 feet away and I said, oh no, something's wrong. I got up on him and I had found the only Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, in the town. Uh, and they had a statue of Colonel Harlan Sanders standing out <laughs> front. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was so put upon and so sad. I, I said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, I, I'm not going to be able to speak English. So I assuaged myself by going in and ordering oh, a three-piece with that's the hilarious. gravy. Yeah. Now, you did tell me a story one time years ago about uh, running into uh, the uh, uh, Mormons. Yeah. No, you know what? You're right. And that was later mm-hmm. in the trip. Yeah. Coming back from university, I would take a trolley. They actually had like, you know, the San Francisco style trolleys, mm-hmm. but they were electric. I believe the word's Dinshaw. Mm-hmm. But I would take it across town to the university. And at the first part of the uh, program, I lived very adjacent so I could walk to the university. Mm-hmm. And the second part, I was literally across town. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, I'd get a lift from uh, 
one of the host parents dropped me off. Mm-hmm. But I always had to get my way back across town. So I'm taking the trolley in. I had to walk a considerable distance to get to the first stop for the trolley to take it to uh, Motomachicho, mm-hmm. which was a, a section of the town. So I'm, I'm wheeling along. And uh, one was an African, African-American guy. No, it was a, a, a Caucasian. But they were... I picked them right out because they were on bicycles and they were heading the opposite direction on the sidewalk from me. I almost hugged those two boys. I'll tell you the truth. I was just, hey, you know. We had a nice long conversation yeah. that day, you know. <laughs> they were both, I, I forgot their names now because it's, gosh, that's going on 30 years. But I remember, you know, they were both from Provo, Utah. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, you know, you guys, it was great. <laughs> well, let me go on because we're, we're running out of time. But. Okay, you have to understand, if you ever fly to Asia, uh, you're on the, literally on the other side of the world. And the flight itself, for me, even though I did do a couple of connections because it was cheap. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we left Atlanta, Houston to Seattle. From mm-hmm. Seattle, we went over basically the Aleutian Islands and came into Japan that way. Mm-hmm. All total, it was 21 hours. Mm-hmm. I landed in Japan. I spent a couple of nights in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Then I went to Haneda Airport, which is a domestic airport, land in Hakodate. Mm-hmm. Okay. The first night was in actually in Tokyo was fitful mm-hmm. at best because it gets daylight at four o'clock over there, 3:30 mm-hmm. a.m. Mm-hmm. Blows your mind if you're you know from here. And didn't get much sleep. We stayed. I believe it's called a Roycon. Which is, it's kind of like a B&B. Mm-hmm. And the first night before we went to this big general thing where we met host families and went to them, mm-hmm. we stayed there, and I got up and couldn't sleep. I was still on American time. Mm-hmm. So I told the, the person who spoke passable English that, you know, I'm going to stretch my legs. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been cooped up in an airplane and I'm I'm all screwed up. I don't know what time. My body doesn't know what time it is. Mm-hmm. So I get dressed. Typical American fashion. I mean, I was just like a long sleeve t-shirt and blue jean. You know, mm-hmm. obviously there's no way I'm going to fit in. Mm-hmm. So you know, <laughs> I'm not going out there dressed like a clown. Just an American. So yeah. I put the stuff on and I walk down the street. And I visited a conveni, which is their word for convenience store, mm-hmm. which was cool, you know, because I wanted to just look at, mm-hmm. you know, they had like Godzilla candy and stuff, Gojira, <laughs> you know, yeah. stuff that, that I'd seen, you know, as yeah. a kid and all. Uh-huh. I, I leave there to go down a side street. And, of course, at that time, those little disposable cameras had just come out. Mm-hmm. And, man, I bought a bushel basket load of those little disposable cameras. So I'm going to take some pictures, you know, of everything. Because, you know, I want to have this. I get down the street, and I encounter my first actual Shinto shrine. Mm-hmm. And I don't read kanji. Mm-hmm. And the all the signage out front, mm-hmm. it, it was very limited, and everything was, like, in kanji. There wasn't katakana or hiragana, which are phonetic, and you can sound those out. And, you know, katakana especially is for 
for a person to be able to send out a foreign word mm-hmm. in Japanese. So I said, okay, I'm going to go into the shrine. Mm-hmm. Because it was a gate and it was open. Well, I took about three steps under the gate to go to the front of the shrine. And you would have thought that I had, uh, you know, committed some great sin because all of the ravens Mm -hmm. began screaming at me. Mm -hmm. And a couple of them started swooping and diving at me. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what to do, really, Mm to be honest with you. I was a kid still in those days, you know, I'm like 20, 21. So I just walked back out, and it took a few seconds, but then they settled back down in the trees. I said, okay, well, you know, I'm going to go back in. Go back in, exact same thing happened. Except the second time, it was just a touch more vicious. In fact, I got tagged in my scalp. Didn't really break the skin or cause me to bleed, but it, it didn't feel great. Mm-hmm. Let's just say that. Yeah. All right, so I said, you know, I'm going to take a picture from the gate, mm-hmm. and I'm going to continue my journey. Mm-hmm. I did. Finally went back to the little Airbnb sort of place. Mm-hmm. It's not. It wasn't an Airbnb, but bed and breakfast, it'll help you understand the concept of the kind of place I was staying. Mm-hmm. I get in. And the son of the owner spoke very decent English. Mm-hmm. He shows up and he stops by because, you know, they want to practice their English. Mm-hmm. We've got a, English, a native English speaker, so great opportunity. And he's asking me about me, et cetera. And I finally, I told him, I said, look, you know, I did this, this, and this. And I said, I went to this little shrine down here. Mm-hmm. And I said... I was just going to walk up just to take a better picture of the front of the shrine. And I said, the ravens wouldn't let me into the shrine. Mm -hmm. He had a real thoughtful look on his face. And I remember him saying, well, you know, that shrine, said, there was a dedication, there was something for the Japanese soldiers who never returned home Mm -hmm. during World War II. And I said, well, do you do you honestly think that maybe there was some spirit activity or whatever that that these ravens didn't want me there because I was a descendant of a person who was on the opposing side mm-hmm. in World War II? And he said, well, you know, in a lot, a very reasonable sort of explanation. He's like, you know, the the scientific side of me mm-hmm. says that maybe the ravens saw that you weren't Japanese Mm -hmm. and you're very uncommon. Mm -hmm. They didn't like that. Mm -hmm. He said, but the other side, the Shinto side of me, Mm -hmm. says, you know, maybe you didn't have any business going in there Mm -hmm. because you really are Mm -hmm. not Japanese and you, perhaps you didn't have the proper spiritual attitude to go in because I had no idea Mm -hmm. what it was. Okay. And I'm gonna the, the second story is real real quick. I, at Americus and Americus is adjacent to Andersonville, Georgia. In Andersonville, the famous Andersonville Civil War prison is there. Now, my undergraduate degree 
was history and anthropology. Mm -hmm. I really probably, had I been at a bigger university, would have been an archaeology mm -hmm. sort of person. Mm -hmm. But I, I, you know, I melded the closest thing I could. So I spent an inordinate amount of time at historic sites and places like that. Mm -hmm. I was up there. It was during a school day. I had completed classes. I had like an 8 o'clock class that morning. The other class had been canceled, and it was in the middle of like January. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a Tuesday in January. It was absolutely deserted. It was mm -hmm. just me up there. And I'd gone down to the stockade area where the prisoners were kept. Because I was always fascinated with, uh, you know, the engineering and, and how these guys would dig these tunnels. And mm -hmm. some of the tunnels were still in existence. Mm -hmm. And you can see, you can't go in them, but but you can see where these guys were doing this. Mm -hmm. And again, this involved uh, not a raven, but a, just a good old South Georgia crow, mm -hmm. or a couple of crows. Mm -hmm. No one else was at the stockade. You could look the entire field of the stockade, which is probably a football and a, and a half field long, twice as wide. It was a huge area. I'm standing there, and a lot of times you go there, you won't hear anything. It'll be dead silent. No crickets, nothing. I see a crow fly. He's flying from west to east. The crow should have flown directly across the open stockade field to the other tree line. Mm -hmm. Kept going, you know. Mm -hmm. He's a, you know, he's a bird. He didn't have yeah. any physical he, he goes as the crow flies. That's right. That's where that expression comes from. That's right. He yeah. does, he doesn't have you know physical obstacles he has to deal with. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't. He flies, he reaches the edge of where the stockade would begin, he mm -hmm. turns south, literally flies the southern perimeter of the stockade mm -hmm. till he turns back north, finds the point where he was heading and turns back east. Mm -hmm. So he literally would not fly over the area. Mm -hmm. He would go around it. He went around it. And that was actually before Japan. Mm -hmm. And I noted that. I'll never forget that. I remember that day. That puzzled me. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to say a bad word right now. I mean, it just was like, what the, you know, it's just mm -hmm. like, why did that just happen? What's mm -hmm. going on here? What can that crow see that I can't see mm -hmm. that he wouldn't fly over? Mm -hmm. Now, you could take those. Those are anecdotal stories, mm -hmm. but they, they are true stories. They're yeah. from my life. Mm -hmm. What does it mean, though? And yeah, and I think it kind of gets back to a question that, that I had written down thinking about the subject of holy sites is what really makes a holy site holy? in the eyes of, and and I'm thinking out about it from two different aspects. One is public holy places mm -hmm. like the Andersonville prison camp. Right. And the and to a little, a little lesser extent, the Shinto shrine that you right. mentioned. One of countless shrines in Japan. And versus um, a private holy place. For instance, uh, like as a, a church-going person, you know, we have our congregational holy places like mm -hmm. the church, you know, and the chapels and places that we go to worship in, in, in a public manner. But also, um, if you're a person who has a spiritual leaning mm -hmm. in the way that you, you live your life, then more often than not, you'll have a holy place that only has 
significant meaning to you. It may be a certain place in the woods that you go to that makes you feel a certain way when you go there. There's maybe a site like um, the grave site of a loved one, mm-hmm. um, a, a place where something significant in your life happened, like maybe the chapel where you got married or, or there was something significant happened. Right. <clears throat> then it comes to the question of, you know, what actually makes a holy place holy? Is it perhaps like in the Shinto shrine, maybe there's a hint of spiritual activity in terms of actual spirits populating the place. Right. Or perhaps Andersonville. Right. Prison camp, which is probably one of the, if, if you're into the, the ghost thing, one of the most notoriously haunted places you could probably ever come yes. across. You know, it ranks up there with Gettysburg Battlefield. Right. And, but but then this, what is it about uh, you contrast that versus, you know, um, what do you feel when you go to a graveyard where a loved one's buried? You know, right. something that, that uh, a, a, a plot of earth, a, a particular spot on the planet that only has significant significance to you, but you consider it one of the holiest places in the universe to you. Right. You know, I don't know if I necessarily have a cogent theory. I know that if I look at the commonality between the two sites, mm-hmm. they both involved individuals who weren't returning home. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. And that really just came to me as mm-hmm. you were talking about and giving an example. It says, well, you know, what is similar? Because I've never really sat down and say, like, well, yeah, you know, they're both people yeah. who aren't going to go home. Mm-hmm. And. People who potentially, you know, you don't know. I mean, if you're on a battlefield, yeah. uh, Andersonville is the exception. You know that those those guys died in some level of despair and misery. Yeah. We don't know, you know, in a lot of the guys that, that come out of that area of Japan, and I spoke with several World War II vets, most of those guys actually were in China or Manchuria. Mm-hmm. Okay? They really never faced... Uh, the Allied powers, I mean, in the sense that they were against U.S. Marines or, mm-hmm. or Australians or whatever. Yeah. But they still, it doesn't matter whether they were blown up in Manchuria or mm-hmm. died out there for whatever reason. Yeah. You know that their one desire for the average person who's not a professional soldier, mm-hmm. they're drafted. Yeah. They have, they're forced to leave their little farms mm-hmm. or whatever profession they do. Mm-hmm. They're carted across to another location that's mm-hmm. hostile yeah. and then they die. Yeah. Whether it's expected, unexpected, whether they're caught and tortured to death, whatever the... Yeah. I just feel like that there's a level of misery in some cases involved in charging an area spiritually. Mm-hmm. If I we, agree with that. It's like a lot of um, the theories about hauntings. Change, mm-hmm. Go back to the, to the ghost thing again. It's like a lot of theory is is that if you have people who passed and then have a lot of unresolved conflict within themselves, right? Like they died in bad circumstances, they were in a great deal of pain or misery, or they died without without resolving certain conflicts with other people, or maybe someone with their family, or they didn't get a chance to say goodbye to someone or anything like that. All of those things that cause spiritual tension. Right. Not only living people, but you know, in, in spirits also. That 
that would cause that sort of energy to congregate around those type of sites. Like, you know, the that Shinto shrine was probably a local shrine to that village. Right. And the people who it was it was dedicated to were probably people who had come from that local area and That's gone right. off to fight in the war. That's right. So um, Well, you know, if, if you think about it, people don't realize there were two places that were opened by the 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 United States when when Commodore Perry in the 1850s went there. Mm-hmm. One was, uh, I believe it was Yokohama. Mm-hmm. They allowed trade there. And the other much lesser known place was this city, Hakodate. Mm-hmm. It was one of two of the places in the entire empire of Japan mm-hmm. that allowed foreigners to even de-ship you know, disembark or whatever and actually go into a Japanese town. Yeah. But Hokkaido itself, which is the most northern island, was in a lot of ways in the, say, the 18th, 16th, well, let's say 17th, 18th century, mm-hmm. and even into the to the early part of the 19th century, it's kind of a Wild West sort of place. Mm-hmm. It was a frontier. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and to think of it, there were still real actual samurai around back then. Oh yeah, sure. There, there was, yeah. In fact, in, in the last little war they had, mm-hmm. Hakodate played a part. One of the samurai families uh, made a, like a last stand in Hakodate at a fortress called Goryokaku, mm-hmm. which is a, a beautiful, I mean, it's a, an excellent sort of uh, example of yeah. uh, a fortress from that era. Yeah, they took a stand against the emperor too, didn't they? That's right. Yeah. When he was modernizing. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, Tom Cruise made a movie years kind of like The Last Samurai. Mm-hmm. This would have been a northern group of samurai. Yeah. You know, I've been but in the very castle. Similar situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're we're talking about a, a, by the standard of Japan at the time, it was a city. Mm-hmm. But it certainly, even during the Meiji era, mm-hmm. was not Tokyo mm-hmm. or Kyoto. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We're talking about. I'm trying to think of... Macon, uh, You know what? Yeah, half of Macon. Yeah. Half of Macon. Probably a city, maybe population 30 to 50,000 mm-hmm. people. Yeah. You know, which at the time was a big town for yeah. the island mm-hmm. because it was it was a frontier island. Anyway, mm-hmm. the point I was trying to make it was, you know, following up exactly what you said, which is that these are rural Japanese. These are not worldly Japanese people. These mm-hmm. people at the time, mm-hmm. even at, at the beginning of the 30s, mm-hmm. this would have still been the sticks. Yeah, and they probably would have fallen along the same general life pattern of most people, standing from that time back into the Middle Ages, where most people lived and died within a 10-mile radius of where they were born. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Absolutely. You, so, you know, if a guy, you know, one of the big industries up there during that time was squid fishing. There were literally generations mm-hmm. in families that yeah. Ojicha, mm-hmm. you know, he, my Ojicha was a squid fisherman. Mm-hmm. His Ojicha was a squid fisherman going back to the 12th century, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know. I'm not trying to say that every holy place is uh, necessarily been charged by misery or loss of hope. But what I am saying is that I feel like somehow 
that there is a conveyance yeah. of spiritual energy from a human. Yeah, there's there's some kind of like, for instance, like uh, those soldiers in that Shinto shrine that was dedicated to have been dead probably long before that shrine had been committed. That's right. Yeah. But then when those people in that village got together and they created that shrine right. and dedicated it to those soldiers, right. At that time, some sort of spiritual energy connection, whatever was suddenly created between those villagers mm -hmm. and perhaps the spirits of those soldiers. That's right. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you know, the thing is, is I am certain to, to very positively certain that mm -hmm. this place was created because there are lots of families who have missing members. Mm -hmm. the, the Asian Pacific War was very messy. If you, you don't oh, yeah. know your history... There were lots of jungle fighting. There was lots of fighting. People just disappeared yeah. and never, you know, never yeah. heard of again. Yeah, and not counting all the people who who died just because they were lost in the jungle from exposure. There, the countless people who died from disease, disease, starvation. So you know, just they leave family. I, you're in the 1950s now. Things have finally restabilized, mm -hmm. and lots of widows, you know. Lots of people, you know, I miss him. Mm -hmm. He he left, and he was, you know, my brother, my son. My, mm -hmm. And they're reaching out because there's literally been a, a hole torn in their family structure by this absence. So I'm positive that as um, a minister, mm -hmm. that the, the, the one thing, you know, I would, if, if, if I were a, a priest at a shrine, mm -hmm. okay, I'm just saying, you know, from my own sort of Christian background, I would want to assuage as much as I possibly could mm -hmm. the people in the congregation that attend my shrine. Mm -hmm. I would want to help them feel better and come to grips so that they're not spending their entire life mourning. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, of course, we in the Christian theology, we believe that, you know, absent from the, from the body in the presence of God, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay, but they don't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do I create a home for, you know, these spirits to come home to? Mm -hmm. So, you know, just spitballing. And I'm, I, mm -hmm. this this is all conjecture. Yeah. But, you know, who knows that maybe... Yeah, well, when you have a theology that doesn't imply or suggest another home to go to, then if you're providing a home... Out of out of the feelings in your heart for a group of spirits, and those group of spirits come and they literally stay in that home, and you maintain that home as a shrine. Right. Well, I mean, it's you know, very well what's going on. You have yeah. a Germanic background, mm -hmm. and my background is sort of Germanic. I mean, we go back Finland and Norway mm -hmm. and Nordic, yeah. and I know for a fact. Uh, of course, this is something I discovered after this. I wasn't familiar with it at the time, but for whatever reason, corvids, mm -hmm. crows, ravens, that family of birds have always been associated mm -hmm. with being spiritual messengers, mm -hmm. being able to move between the worlds. Mm -hmm. You know, Odin had two ravens that he used to see with. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd listen and then they'd come back and tell him. But always, these this particular kind of bird has been charged with spiritual energy. Mm -hmm. And even today... I mean, uh, I pay attention now. 
even though I, I mean I'm a Christian, but I, I'm also look, I also look at things in a holistic manner. Mm-hmm. So if you know a crow suddenly lands outside of my windows, pecking on the window and calling at me, yeah. I'm gonna look around, pal. Yeah. I'm gonna pay attention that you know. Well, am I getting a message of some degree? Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, you know, in oh, my yeah. environment, I, yeah. those old people weren't necessarily just no, because they I mean, were you pagan. Keep, weren't keep stupid. In mind. No, it's, I mean, you keep in mind. I mean, uh, as Christians, we believe that God has revealed things to us. Right. There's nothing in it that says He has revealed everything to us. Obviously, He's not. Right. Okay. Oh yes. But what He has revealed to us is what we need. Mm-hmm. to have revealed to us. Right. But there's all sorts of things and truths and whatnot that's going on out there that, you know, that we may not be privy to that in the course of experience of our lives we may brush up upon. That's right. You know, like getting a message from a raven. Ah, there yeah. you go. Well, it, it wasn't like, you know, there's not a biblical precedent. We know it's sending raven and a dove out. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah. I'm like I said, I'm not trying to turn this into a religious show. I'm just saying if you have to look, at least in my worldview, in a holistic way, mm-hmm. field theory. Yeah. Look, look at all of the commonality of an, of uh, of events mm-hmm. to help you derive a cogent theory about yeah. what's taking place. Yeah. You know, I, years ago, over around Conyers, mm-hmm. there was a lady, and I believe her name was Nancy Fowler, mm-hmm. and she, uh, and if I'm wrong, I, I'm sorry. You could probably find it on the internet, but she. Claimed to be receiving visits from the Blessed Virgin Mother. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she had a series of uh, messages, and I went. Mm-hmm. She would do it uh, publicly. She would uh, have the event and say, on such and such a date, mm-hmm. the the Blessed Virgin Mary is going to deliver a message to me. Mm-hmm. And, you you know, mm-hmm. and they, they had created a place where people could go pray and sit. So mm-hmm. I went to one of those. Mm-hmm. I, you know, pr- just honestly prurient uh, curiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah. that, that I was surrounded by, you know, literally uh, at the event I went to, hundreds of very devout mm-hmm. Roman Catholic people. Yeah. And she came out and she delivered a message. And it had very much to do with Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I had really no understanding of a lot of what she said frankly mm-hmm. it was like okay I sort you know you, you being a, being from a Christian church <clears throat> you know theology well but you might not know canon law for a different church mm-hmm. okay yeah. so she delivered a message and uh, on that day I didn't you know not putting her down mm-hmm. I'm just saying that maybe my depth of, of understanding wasn't enough mm-hmm. I didn't feel anything. Well, here, here, here brings up a, a, a thing, and because because while you were going through that, I was thinking in the back of my mind about the contrast because you brought up the two examples of the Shinto shrine in Andersonville. Right. Now they're both spiritually charged places. Right. I mean, you can make that argument, but the Shinto shrine is is a shrine where people come to worship. Right. And make connection with lost ancestors, lost loved ones. That's and right. It is a place of worship. Okay. Yep. Andersonville is not a place of worship. No, it is not. It's just something where a lot of bad stuff happened, and a lot of spiritual energy is probably there and trapped there, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And then you have the situation like you just brought over the Marian vision, which 
the lady may actually be experiencing something or she may be a charlatan or, or right. whatever but for whatever reason she's attracting all of these devout people to congregate right. in one place and try to to fashion out of not exactly whole cloth a a impromptu holy place right so what would you think are the things that would like the the properties that would like contrast those three situations you got one place that has genuine spiritual energy and is a place of worship. Right. You have a place that has plenty of spiritual energy, but it's not a place of worship. Right. And then you have a place that may not have either one, potentially. True. Now I'm not calling anybody a charlatan or anything out there. I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah, me either. You know, I'm not. I have yeah. like the, the, the subject of, of of Marian visions and everything is is a very obscure part of the Catholic tradition and. And there have been many books written on it, and we could probably do an entire show on it. That would probably be fascinating. Yeah, and let me, just as an addendum, let me say, I voluntarily am telling you that at the time I was uh, a kid, truly a teen. Yeah. I mean, I was, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I just, you know, gotten a, a vehicle. Yeah. You know, okay, I was yeah. able to drive. You so were enjoying them wheels. That's right. I was enjoying the wheels. I said, you know what, I don't have to. I can drive over there myself and see this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I had no idea. I was out of my depth, certainly theologically. Oh, yeah. And I just went. It was more or less to me a spectacle, and I absolutely don't imply in any way whether or not uh, this lady saw the Blessed Virgin Mary. Yeah. That that whole area is, is is a very obscure fringe area, even the most Catholics. Right. So. You know, the thing is, while Andersonville was not, I don't know. I don't know if I disagree with you in the sense that it wasn't perhaps a, a sanctified space. Mm -hmm. But there certainly was a lot of prayer lifted. And, yeah. you know, there so were... You, so you think it maybe it actually was a place of prayer where people come to visit? And they... Well, I don't know if people came to visit, but I, I know just the, the, you know, we have a population of prisoners, but they're not criminals. Yeah. These people are captured soldiers. Mm -hmm. And they even had, I know there's one famous story of a priest coming from Savannah. Uh -huh. He died there, I believe. Yeah. It, you know, but he too ministered to them. Mm -hmm. And I know that they had like their own sort of group of, I, I don't know if it, they were officially chaplains, yeah. but they were, they were paid. So, you know, so and really probably there's a lot more in common between Andersonville and perhaps the Shinto Shrine. As an example that we would see. Well, I just think, yeah, I think that there's because you have the Shinto shrine, which is which is people coming to pay respects to soldiers who were lost. Mm -hmm. You have Andersonville, which draws a lot of visitors every year. Right. People coming to pay, and a lot of times they're kind of overwhelmed by the experience, and they're paying respects to the soldiers who were lost there. Mm -hmm. Once they're visiting there, and they learn about the conditions that were there and the number of people that were there. Right. So really, probably a lot of the same activities that take place at the Shinto shrine happen there. You could say happen there also. And you know, so you, a lot of the the same dynamics are going on. Even and I don't know anything. Of course, you know, at the time that I visited the shrine, it was one day. I never returned to the shrine after mm -hmm. that day. Yeah. Because you know, schedule took over. Mm -hmm. So I can't say that I have an absolute complete understanding and knowledge of the history of that particular Shinto shrine. Yeah. But I do know that at Andersonville, and I believe it was the summer of 1864 or 63, I know it was a, an awful time. They had one mm -hmm. 
little stream that acted as a sewer and a water source that bisected the compound. Mm-hmm. And it was so hot and dry that that was even drying up. And the prisoners, you know, they didn't really have any cover other than what they could assemble themselves out there. And if, for a person who's never been to Georgia, I promise you, you know, when you get into South Georgia in the middle of July, August, you're so close to hell, you can see the sparks. I'm just telling you, it's <laughs> it's hot, friend. Yeah. You know, we're, we people say we're subtropical, but mm-hmm. we it's not uncommon 115, 120 degrees mm-hmm. Fahrenheit, yeah. you know, in an open area, especially some place like that that has no tree cover. Mm-hmm. And they were so desperate that they prayed, and out of the blue, at the end of the prayer, a thorn, thunderstorm cropped up. And that in and of itself might not be so miraculous because in the south, in Georgia, in the summertime, we have pop-up thunderstorms all the time. They rain for 30 minutes maybe, yeah. then they go away. Yeah. But in this particular thunderstorm, it popped up, and a lightning bolt struck the ground, and from the place where the lightning bolt struck, a freshwater spring appeared. And it's there, it runs to this day, they say the water's not potable, mm-hmm. okay, but it's called Harmony Spring. Mm-hmm. And there's even a like, like a little building mm-hmm. over, you know, on the, it's on like, um, it's not within the stockade, but it's adjacent to the uh, west gate of the stockade. Mm-hmm. And it's still, it's still running today. That, that spring saved countless lives mm-hmm. because they, again, had at least a, a more clean water source than they would have had. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, that just, when you were talking about that, that popped in my mind about, well, you know, uh, the, the possibility of a miracle or miraculous things taking place. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> to my knowledge, if we go back to the Marian vision mm-hmm. over there, no one else saw the Blessed Virgin Mother mm-hmm. except for the lady mm-hmm. who said it. Yeah. Okay, a lot like uh, the one at Fatima. Yeah. Although they do claim that on the third uh, visitation at Fatima, that there was a miracle display. The earth mm-hmm. spun or something took place. You know, I don't know. Yeah. On that day, I could have missed it. You know, I don't know. I didn't see anything. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, I didn't, I felt nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm not trying, you know, put down Catholics, Catholicism, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, I didn't feel anything at the Shrinto Shrine. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have felt stuff in Andersonville. Mm-hmm. You know, leaping to how our bodies react. Yeah. Um, in Andersonville, uh, you you can truly be overwhelmed emotionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I've never had it happen with a group of people around, mm-hmm. but, you know, when they were first putting in the uh, faux stockade walls and the deadline mm-hmm. and stuff to kind of give people an idea of what it looked like, yeah. uh, if you were up there, like, as a, as a history student, I have, like, had to just leave. It's just like, oh, man, I just cannot. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing out there. I mean, it's an open field. You know, just you just suddenly feel overwhelmed with uh, mm. sometimes miserable dread. Mm. 
at least in my case. Yeah. Had the hair stand up on my arm, and I have a lot of hair on my arm, so yeah. it's, you know. I, I don't know. I mean, what does make a holy place holy? I mean, you. Mm-hmm. I know that we play a part in it because, well. Well, we go there with expectations for one thing. One thing, yeah. yeah. You know, that we have a, we have a place that's set aside for a certain purpose. Right. We're in a certain frame of mind when we go there. We have certain expectations for what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. Right. You know, and for instance, like Andersonville. I mean, you can kind of psychologically load yourself up before you even get close to that place. Yeah. When you're thinking about what went on there and what y'all get to see. So once you once you know you've been thinking about this, all that's been going around in the back of your mind, then you actually go in that place. And then you have all the sensory stuff to go along with it. Right. Then you kind of get partially overwhelmed. Yeah. Oh well. I mean. Now that that could be. I'm not saying that's instead of. But that could be in addition to any of the genuine spiritual activity that's going on there. Yeah. You know. And I could. Uh, as a one-off sort of thing, I see that. But in my case, I'd been there countless times, and uh, it was, it was more or less, you know. Every time. Not, not, wait, no, you know, not every time, just uh, upon occasion. Mm-hmm. And it was more like a job to me yeah. because I'm working on a degree. Mm-hmm. And this is just, you know, it'd be like me doing an archaeology degree and I'm working on Teotihuacan. Yeah. It's the job site. Yeah. I've got to go out. Site, yeah. Right. I'm out there. You're going to work. I'm yeah. going to work. So I'm not really going to have some kind of great spiritual uh, yeah. sort of event type place. Yeah. So I don't know. I think we charge them up in a way. I think, you know, I forgot which law is it that says that energy is never destroyed but only changes form? It's conservation of of energy. Conservation of energy, okay. So we know that this is a sound law Mm -hmm. in the universe. We know that uh, the energy that we're generating Mm -hmm. is not destroyed. Yeah. It changes form. Yeah. And who says, or you know, that? Yeah, well, it goes into like, you know, what what type of energy is emotional energy, right? Or spiritual energy. That's right. You know, how does it get stored up within a place? That's right. You know. So we're putting off, we're like little batteries in a way. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So you figure you push fifteen thousand people together. Yeah. And they're all miserable. Mm-hmm. And they're all are uh, experiencing despair. Yeah. Right. And this is a constant 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week ordeal, at least yeah. during the time that it's open. Yeah, people are dying all over the place every minute. People starving. You know. That's right. Yeah. Friends are losing friends. And it's just, it's absolutely saturating, almost like Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. saturating the ground with this spiritual energy. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I, I think it's really interesting. Uh, you, you harken back to place names. There's a reason. There's a place over in Meriwether County, and it's called Booger Holler. Okay? Mm-hmm. I doubt very seriously that was an Indian name. <laughs> uh, but at some time, at some place, somebody experienced something there, and that place became known as Booger Holler. Mm-hmm. Or I'm trying to think of some other places around that, you know. Oh, so just, just kind of... of it's there. It's a weird event that someone just kind of gave it some significance or something. That's right. Yeah. And it gets named, so then it's charged. Mm-hmm. Forever, this is Booger Holler. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're talking about Gettysburg earlier, mm-hmm. Devil's Den. Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, I know the story of Devil's Den. There was a giant black snake that uh, 
lived in the rocks there. Mm-hmm. And somebody tagged him and called him the devil because it was such a big uh, snake. Uh-huh. Now, you know, I'd heard other stories about the devil appearing and all this other stuff mm-hmm. because of the carnage at, at Gettysburg. But the if you really search the history back, it was pre-Gettysburg, Civil War Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, Pennsylvania farmers out there and mm-hmm. say, oh, geez, look at that giant you know, black they, snake, yeah. look at that devil, you know. <laughs> yeah. it, so it just kind of grew from there. It grew from there, see. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. I think in our daily lives, I know uh, in many homes, and now in Japan, this is very common. Not so common here, but it is, it, it, there are people here. They have a sh- like an a altar mm-hmm. or a shrine in their home. And I, I kind of... It's, so, it's very common in Eastern European countries, too, that was called an icon corner. That's right. And I sort of have an icon corner in my house. And I have one of mine also. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I have a a, a picture of uh, the blessed um, heart, mm-hmm. sacred heart. Mm-hmm. And then below it, I've got, like, you know, some holy cards and stuff, St. Mm-hmm. Padre Pio, mm-hmm. whatever. And I don't necessarily formally have a kneeler or anything that I go get on, but but I will oftentimes if I have a, a need and I'm praying about something, I'll light a candle. Yeah. I place it there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which to me, you know, I'm you know I'm a Christian. I'm not what. I, but but I feel like as a symbol, I don't think there's any kind of uh, magical or any kind of. Uh, I don't know what's the right word I want to say. The, the, the candle it's more more mystical, I guess. That's right. The candle represents the prayer to me. Mm-hmm. That's ongoing need or something that I'm trying mm-hmm. to deal with in my personal life. Yeah. I don't think there's any here you go spiritual currency or benefit. Yeah. I don't think that uh, a paraffin candle is anything other than yeah, it's, just, it's symbolic. It's symbolic. I mean, it's just, a, lot, a lot of the act is symbolic. To me, like if I turn all the lights off in the room. And I have a lit candle, and I put it in front of my two main icons, which, being an Orthodox Christian, uh, you would typically have an icon corner that consists of uh, what they call a diptych, which is two icons side by side. One is of Mary with the infant Jesus, which in, in, the, in the Orthodox geology in the Greek word is called a theotokos. Right. And then on the right is an image of the older Jesus, mm-hmm. which is, is typically portrayed with him standing and looking at the viewer, and he's holding the gospel in his hand. Right. And that is called the Pantocrator, or Christ the Teacher. Right. And, uh, and most all of the icon corners that you'll find consist of those two main icons, and all around them will be a smattering of different icons representing various saints or biblical events. And uh, but uh, to me the the candle had always if you turn off the light and just have the candle sitting there in front of it it is sort of symbolic of the light of God piercing the darkness right and so you're, you're contemplating the the icon which in in Eastern theology is not a piece of art or, or uh, you know an idol or anything like that basically it is considered a window into heaven. Okay. So when you're looking at an icon of a saint, what you're not looking at a, a, a painting of a saint, you're looking through a window at the actual saint in heaven who's looking through the window back at you. Right. That's kind of the theology of the icon in a nutshell. 
Right. And, and a person who doesn't understand this, uh, that that is not familiar with Christianity. And like I said, this we're not proselytizing, okay? No. We, what, what we have to do is, and I think any person, if you were out there and you were a Levian Satanist, you, you know, you're welcome, please, you know, listen to the show. Uh, and at some point, you know, I may try to get, I, I know a couple of people who are practicing Levian Satanists, and I might try to get, you know, a couple of those folks in because we want to examine everything in our class, Okay. We want to look at everything, and no disrespect is meant to anybody's worldview or religious belief, okay? But every person is coming from their own point of view, mm-hmm. okay? Steve and I have this in common. We have this the- theology in common, so we both can look at uh, look at a, a situation or problem from that worldview, and he can, you know, Steve can share orthodoxy, and, you know, I'm not really, I don't know, I'm just, I'm more or less like the, the black and white generic Christian mm-hmm. that you would get, you know. I, I think everybody has some um, merit. Mm. But if, you know, you know, if you really want to, if, if I had to boil down my theology, it would be thief on the cross. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, you call on God, and God recognizes that you're truly, you know, mm-hmm. sorry for your sins. Yeah. And he says, okay, you know, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Because you're just because you're honest. Mm-hmm. You're an honest guy. Yeah. You know, you, you get the point. You get the point. Yeah. So, you know, that's why I, you know, I, I love to go and, and visit. I've been to, like, a snake handling church. And, oh, yeah. You know, different places. And, yeah. And every, every, and I have to say this, whether it's Orthodox or Roman mm-hmm. Catholic or... Well, technically, the the snake handling church is the Church of Jesus Christ with signs following. Hmm. If you wanted yeah. to have a denomination, but that's who yeah. they are. But every single place I've ever gone to, mm-hmm. what I've found is a genuine, honest belief mm-hmm. in the basic theology and doctrine that was taught mm-hmm. by Christ. Yeah. And I have never walked away from one of these situations mm-hmm. without gaining some valuable spiritual merit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's all about each one of us as we, as we go through life and we have various levels of spiritual awakenings that it's all about each and each of our individual journeys through life and trying to establish a connection a meaningful connection between ourselves and our existence and the universe in general that's right you know where do we where do we fit in creation where do we fit in the universe uh, Christianity, just to take an example, is is pretty much all about relationships. Mm-hmm. How do I relate to my fellow man? How do I relate to my brother and sister and, right. and, and fellow you know children and the rest of the human race? How do I fit into society? How do I fit into the world around me? How do I fit into the universe? You know, how do I fit into creation? And it's all the journey is all about discovering how and where we fit in, where we do the most good and the most benefit. Mm-hmm. But just, I mean, Pat and I have both, on an, uh, as individual matters, have, have staked out our own course of spiritual development. But that's not to say that we're going to disparage anything else. As a matter of fact, um, the very act 
that anyone undergoes of trying to establish a spiritual connection with the universe around him is a very fascinating thing. Right, absolutely. And it's not one that we're that we're trying to pass judgment on. It's, it's just a study. Right. And to say that, well, you know, I mean, a, a Levian Satanist, you may on an, on an individual line, I may not agree with them, but I am very truly interested in the spiritual journey that they've chosen to undertake. Right. And why and how. Well, you know, the thing is, obviously, you know, you, you if you're a seeker like we are. Mm. I've read these holy books. Mm-hmm. I've read uh, Anton Sins or LeVay's Satanic Bible. In As fact, have I. Yeah, right. I mean, read, you know, basically all of the stuff, the Satanic Witch. Over the years, mm-hmm. I've read the stuff because it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. What does this person mean? Mm-hmm. What, what is this person, what's the point of, you know, he trying to get over? What's he trying to say? Or what has mm-hmm. he, he arrived at? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing that really boiled down to me about mm-hmm. Satanism was this a Satanist is really and, and they're probably uh, I don't want to get cursed out but mm-hmm. but the truth is you know a Satanist doesn't live outside the golden rule a Satanist basically says you know you treat me in the same manner that I treat you mm-hmm. yeah. and we're going to be fine Yeah. well that's the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you mm-hmm. so a Satanist is like you know He's, I think a Satanist was just saying, okay, well, you know, I was nice to you, but you've been ugly to me. The difference is, is there ain't no cheek turning in Satanism. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, you, you mess up, you do a guy wrong. Well, get ready, pal. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're fixing to get dead. That's right. That's right. You're, you're it's coming at you. Yeah. You know. And well, well, all, I mean, all, all concepts of morality have their underlying philosophy. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when I when I read uh, LeVay's books that uh, at the very even in the introduction to the Satanic Bible he would tell you so well you know he was basically an atheist and he didn't believe any of it but he invented the Church of Satan as a way to fulfill what he believed was was man's need for ritual and for ceremony. Mm-hmm. He said um, if, if he believed that mankind had an innate need for the religious type symbolism and Mm-hmm. activity and, and ritual and and all of those kind of things because it fulfills some sort of psychological need. Which takes us back to Jung. Yeah. In the, the light in the, the dark. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's just it's what it is, but you know, well we 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 got if we started on that we'd have another show. That's right. A whole hour. So we're gonna have to wind it up. But I would just say this, you know, as you go around uh, in your life and you're exploring places because this is a seeker sort of uh, podcast this is for people who are seriously interested in expanding their mind and looking being taught from other experiences and you're going to create your own experiences you're going to go out there and i'm going to say this your best friend is go to these places but go in silence okay we're not silent enough in our society now all of these great religions or belief systems came from a time when there wasn't so terrible much noise pollution that's true and i find um even today i have to uh, if i really want to spiritually get serious 
you know, even if I'm just at home, I have to cut off the TV. I have to put the, plone, the, the phone on airplane mode. And I have to just let the ambient sound of the world enshroud me. Uh, and then listen to the voice inside and, and speak to God or whomever that you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. Open a clear channel because there's so much pollution now, mm-hmm. not only electromagnetic, mm-hmm. but certainly with noise. You know, in my house, I, I live in basically mm-hmm. sort of a suburbia. You know, mm-hmm. so you're sitting there and some guys cutting grass and two guys over have yeah. a chainsaw out. Mm-hmm. And when you really get a place in a nature, sort of environment where mm-hmm. you can really be still and quiet. Take advantage of that mm-hmm. and seek, you know, through prayer or within yourself. And it helps you actually, you, sometimes, you know, I've had real problems that I've been trying to deal with. Mm-hmm. And suddenly because it was silent and my brain was able to relax and just probe within, I've had solutions come to me, mm-hmm. you know, just out of the blue. Yeah, just just from the meditation of, of just being able to turn off all of those inputs that That's right. always distract you. Because and to, to follow up on what Pat says, I think um, it's very important. I think to lead to lead a balanced life mm-hmm. between the world and your own spirituality, mm-hmm. and everybody fights a battle with that. But I cannot recommend to you too much the the benefit you would get from finding your own personal holy place right or holy space i agree with that whether it's a corner of your house that you have reserved for icons or holy pictures or anything like that or if you're not even in that bent just find a patch of wood someplace or the side of a pond or or something like that where you can leave yourself your smartphone in the car and, and be away from the noise and just kind of sit there and, and enjoy the sounds of nature and just, just someplace away from the hustle and bustle and the noise and everything. Today, I mean, even when, when Pat and I were growing up, we lived in an age where the world, the information and everything that was going on in the world hit us like it does today, but at least it came at a rate where we were sort of able to filter it out right. somewhat. That's right. Nowadays, whenever we get up in the morning and we turn on the internet or we turn on our smartphone and, and check our news feed or whatever and see what's going on in the world, it's literally like somebody turned a fire hose on your brain. Yes. There's so much information hitting you that nowadays we don't even try to filter it out anymore. It just goes in one ear and out the other. That's right. And uh, when you get into the kind of, of rut where the world is just kind of flowing through you and you're just kind of floating along like a jellyfish with no mm-hmm. visible spiritual means of support. I can't recommend to you enough to just, just just find some place where you can take a deep breath and relax and just get away from it all and just find your own holy place where you can you can go there and say, okay, I can sit here, I can go home, I can, I can meditate, I can do whatever, and here's where I can find my connection to the universe and mm-hmm. sort it all out. That is a true holy place. Yes, and you know what? Don't be afraid. Just cut your brain off either, by the way. Yeah. You don't necessarily have to pray. Mm-hmm. You just go out there. If you just don't think about anything and give that, you know, your smooth noodle unit up between your ears, give Absolutely. it a uh, a break. Yeah. If, if, if you guys ever ever hear in, 
get to see interviews or discussions with monastics, whether in Christian monastics or, or, or other... Even Buddhists. Even Buddhists. Uh, one of the things that they try to do and they spend their entire lives doing is to teach their brain not to have random thoughts. Yep. They sit there and they concentrate on what they're doing and all of those... Because whenever you... One, one thing you'll find out about a holy place is that when you're trying to, to sit there and just kind of shut everything down, that all it's, you'll find it nearly impossible to shut your brain off. All these random thoughts are going to come into your head about stuff that happened during the day or world events or somebody made you mad, they cut you off on the way to the spot or something like that. And it's a lifelong practice discipline by, by people who've been monastics for their entire lives to train their minds to shut those type of thoughts off where they don't come. Mm-hmm. Well, that story, then we're going to go, God, y'all. Uh, and just to give you an example of the difference between the time when I was a little boy and now, uh, it's a place I grew up. It was a little town called Sunnyside in the north end of Spalding County. And out Teeman Road, and it's grown up some now too, but about five miles from where my house sat, you ever heard, I don't know, they were a big company in those days, United Fruit Company. United Fruit Company had a packing shed because our area of Georgia was noted for peaches. And along in August, and it would be very hot, and uh, cicadas might be out. That was the only constant sound you might hear during the summertime. You wouldn't you wouldn't hear cars going by. It would just be dead silence. But we would hear when they had finished harvesting peaches, they would pull these uh, big wagons behind tractor. And you could hear that tractor crank up. It was five miles away, and you knew that in 10 minutes, if you got out there, you might get a free peach. Right. <laughs> when uh, the crew went by, they yeah. might sling you an Alberta peach. Right. But literally, you could hear that five miles away. That's the difference between, say, 1970 yeah. and 2018. 2018, you know, holy cow. Anyway, all right, well, thank you for tuning in this week. Next week, we're going to come at you, and it's going to be, like, completely different, guys. We're going to talk about UFOs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going off-world to the off-world colonies, me and Steve. We're going to... That's right. I'm glad to be back for that. Yeah, <laughs> me too. It's, you know, they say it's a glorious land of new adventure off-world. So That's right. we're going to go off-world next week. Thank you guys for tuning in. Please avail yourself of contacting us with questions. And until then, we hope you have a wonderful week. And uh, thanks for tuning in to Anecdotal Notes. Thank you.